The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Filled with the Spirit, who is our teacher, who is the one who helps us uh, not only store doctrine in our soul, but to recall it and to remember it for application. He is the one who produces the spiritual growth. We don't do it on our own. So we need to make sure we are in fellowship with the Lord and filled with the Spirit. So we always take a few minutes of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. And then we will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we have the privilege to gather as a body of believers in the freedom of this nation to worship you and to accurately teach what your word has said, despite the fact that it uh, cuts across the prevailing politically correct opinions of the day, and they challenge our own thinking. Father, we pray that as we study your word, that we would be positively responsive to the challenge, that we would be willing, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, to objectively evaluate our own lies in the light of the mirror of your word, and that we would be willing to change and transform as you work to conform us to the image of Christ. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us and cause us to understand these things and to recall them uh, for application. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you've noticed, starting last week, we uh, do our annual homage to the season by singing Christmas hymns. Well, there are some other hymns that are related to people's various professions. Now, take note, because some of this may apply to you. There is the dentist's hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. <laughs> then there's the meteorologist's hymn, There Shall Be Showers of Blessing. Then, for many of you, there's the contractor's hymn, The Church's One Foundation. Then there is the uh, Taylor's hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And the golfer's hymn, There is a Green Hill Far Away. And then in light of this 
time of year for the last month, we have the politician's hymn, Standing on the Promises. (laughs) Then there's the optometrist's hymn, Open My Eyes That I Might See. (laughs) Then there's the one we should sing every, every April 15th, it's the IRS agent's hymn, I Surrender All. Then for some of you, the gossip's hymn, Pass It On, and the electrician's hymn, Send the Light. And then there is the shopper's hymn, Sweet, Buy, and Buy. And for those of us who have led in our right foot, there are, speed, there are hymns for speeding on the highway. This was sent to me, and the person who sent it to me said, pay particular notice to the last section which is this section, 45 miles an hour, God will take care of you. At 55, it's guide me, O thou great Jehovah. At 65, it's nearer my God to thee. At 75 miles per hour, it's nearer, still nearer. At 85, it now becomes this world is not my home. At 95, it's Lord, I'm coming home. And over 100, it's precious memories. Well, now that everybody's awake, let's uh, open our Bibles to the fifth chapter of Judges. The fifth chapter of Judges, and we continue the hymn of Deborah, written in praise to God for giving them the victory over the armies of Sisera and Yabin, the king of Hatsor. This is a fascinating hymn for a number of reasons. One can uh, get bogged down in the Hebrew because it is probably one of the oldest examples of ancient Hebrew that we have. This one thing that makes its interpretation so difficult, and it's because the translation is so awkward. There are numerous Hebrew words here that are used only one time. This is the only time they're found in the entire Old Testament. That's called the hapax from the uh, Greek for meaning once. It's used only one time. And there are numerous other words that are used only one other time or two other times in the Old Testament. And if some of you are using a King James Version or a New King James Version, your translation in a few passages here radically differs from the New American Standard or the NIV, not because of textual uh, problems, which is often the case when there's a difference between the NIV or the King James because it, it, in the New Testament, because in the New Testament the NIV relies upon uh, Aleph and, and uh, Codex B and Codex A, and, and which are considered the oldest and therefore in that view the best manuscripts, and King James and New King James are based on the Textus Receptus, and, uh, which is a different text background, and we've covered some of that. But that's not true in the Old Testament. And uh, frankly, I go along with many of the ways the King James translates this than the uh, New American Standard, and I think it makes a little more sense. But if we take the time to dwell on the Hebrew technicalities in this psalm that extends for some 31 verses, we will be in Judges 5, perhaps until the rapture. So I am glossing over many of the... uh, Hebrew technicalities to go straight for the uh, interpretation and understanding of what the uh, poem is all about. A few times I'll reference the 
Hebrew here or there, but, but for the most part, I'll try to correct the understanding and then uh, drive for the application. We started last time seeing that verse 1 expresses the title of the psalm. It is the uh, psalm from Deborah and Barak that, that they sang after the victory. This was written. We don't know who wrote it. Very possibly Deborah wrote the, the uh, song. That's one of the difficulties because in places it refers to Deborah in the first person and in other places it refers to Deborah in the third person. So if you're writing, you would use the first person consistently perhaps. So that's just one of the many interpretive problems that exegetes have to deal with. First eight verses are from two through eight. We had the general proclamation or call on the nation to praise God, to praise Yahweh for His victory. And this recognizes the fact that Israel at this time had, uh, for, at least for the previous period, had succumbed to apostasy and idolatry and had gone under, come under the fourth cycle of discipline. They were oppressed for 20 years by the uh, military might of the king of Hatzor, and they were uh, defeated. And so there was not much left in among the nation. And it is also, during this whole episode, chapter 4 and chapter 5, which says a critique, it's an indictment on the continued decline and deterioration of leadership in Israel. So we need to plug it in again so we don't forget our overall uh, framework for, for the book of Judges. We studied the first three chapters, or at least down to 3.6, is the introduction. Then the next major division, which is the body of this book, is from 3.7 to 16.31. And then there's an epilogue from 17 to 21. The introduction introduces us to the cycles of disobedience, discipline and deliverance that takes place in Israel. But the main body shows the breakdown, the collapse of leadership in the nation due to apostasy. When a culture apostatizes, when they depart from the truth of Bible doctrine, it affects everyone in the nation from the top down so that the leadership reflects the basic attitudes of the people. And so when this section indicts the the leadership, the upper crust of the society, for their failures to uh, stand firm on the word, for their assimilation and compromise with idolatry. It is an indictment on everyone in the nation. It's not just the leaders who were uh, apostatizing. It is everyone. And a nation often has leaders that are simply mirrors of their own values and their own attitudes and their own failures. And much could be said about that in our present uh, political situation. We often get the leaders we deserve, even though we may not uh, go, go along, some of us may not go along with their political philosophies or background. The last four chapters show the breakdown of the people, the consequences of apostasy among the population in general. To put this in perspective, we started off the period looking at the first judge, Othniel, who delivered the nation from a Mesopotamian oppression. Then Ehud, the second judge, delivered them from a Moabite oppression. 
Then we had this brief verse in chapter 3, verse 31 of Shamgar, who was not a Jew, not a judge, but was a Gentile unbeliever used by God to uh, control the Philistine threat on the southeast flank of Israel, or southwest flank of, of Israel, uh, so that they could, would not be distracted while they were also going through oppressions from the north and the, and the east. And then this is the uh, third judge, Deborah. She is the judge, and Barak is the general. There's a cycle of deterioration of positive volition through this period. Each judge gets progressively worse. We have to keep that in mind, that these judges, while there are certain spiritual uh, values to them, that they have uh, times in their lives they trust the Lord, with each successive judge, the condition just gets worse and worse in the nation. So that while they are uh, exemplified as heroes of faith, trusting God at one particular time in their life, in Hebrews chapter 11, they are the, the, the writer of Judges is not portraying them to us as those who are without spot or blemish. They are mostly with spot and blemish. It is just on occasion that they trust God. That is an example of God's grace to us because that's the way most of us are. Most of the time, we are not nearly as faithful as trusting. We do not apply doctrine nearly as consistently as we hope we do and as we delude ourselves into thinking we do. And yet God is ever faithful and ever gracious, and so we must align ourselves with uh, and understand His grace that we live, breathe, walk, eat, go to work, drive our cars, all by means of the grace of God, and that no one else is any better than we are, and so we have enough to worry about in terms of our own spiritual life without worrying about what somebody else is doing or not doing and what their failures might be and what their successes might be. And we know that our job is to fight the assimilation of pagan thought into our own uh, mentality, just as it was in the ancient world. And we should take a note of not only encouragement from the grace of God in the lives of the judges, but also a warning of what happens to those who succumb to the temptation to assimilate, compromise, and go along to get along philosophy with the world around us. Well, Judges 5 gives us a tremendous descriptive praise psalm of how God delivered Israel from the oppression. And the point of doctrine for us is that God is the one who always gives us victory over the adversity in life, And we also see in the context of this what happens when we fail to trust God and that outside pressure of adversity is converted into stress in the soul and produces fragmentation because what we're going to see in these next verses is a picture of the internal fragmentation of Israel. We always have to remember that this picture of Israel at war in the Old Testament is used in the New Testament to portray the believer's engagement in spiritual warfare. It's a picture of our spiritual life. So we use this by analogy to illustrate principles of spiritual warfare and the believers walk with the Lord. In verses 2 through 8, we saw the proclamation and call to praise God. And then starting in verse 9 down through verse 30, it's the main body of the hymn. And this is the report of deliverance uh, by Deborah. There is, in verses 9 through 11, a brief summary which uh, 
challenges the listener to listen carefully and to pay attention to to what is said in the psalm and what is said in praise of God and how God delivers. And then in starting in verse 12 down through 15, uh, we see a listing of the various tribes who obeyed and volunteered for military service and praise for those who obeyed. Starting in 15b, we see condemnation and criticism for those who failed to volunteer. For those who were the equivalent of draft dodgers, went to uh, some foreign country, you know, by analogy, instead of uh, standing firm and, and defending the nation against her enemies. We read in verse um, 12, a call to Deborah. Now, that here we see Deborah. As a th- and the, referred to in the third person, so this statement comes from God. It is a uh, rehearsal of God's call to Deborah to go to Barak and to invite him to lead the armies of Israel against the enemy. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song. You catch the, the meter, the beat in the Hebrew, you see this, it speeds up. All of a sudden there's an intensity here, there's a tremendous amount of emotion throughout this whole psalm because the people are excited. They're supposed to sing this. They've had victory. God has has delivered them from 20 years of slavery to this foreign power. And we studied that the reason that a nation becomes enslaved ultimately comes from spiritual principles. Once you, as individual citizens in a nation, succumb to the temptation of the sin nature, you become a sin of the sin nature. That's Romans chapter 6. And a nation who stays in slavery to the sin nature develops a mentality of a slave. And they become soul slaves. And it's not long before a nation of soul slaves enslaves themselves to some foreign power or to their own government and gives them the authority to tyrannize them. So we have to watch because that is the direction our nation is headed. The more we uh, give the federal government power to make decisions and to control things and to legislate safety. You can't legislate responsibility or safety past a certain point. And this is one thing that I've noted uh, as a trend over the last 20 years. Part of it you see with the insurance industry, that there is, uh, ex- with the excessive litigation, every t- nobody wants to uh, accept blame for their own failures and accidents. It's always somebody else's, so let's take them to court so you have an increased litigation. And uh, that produces uh, all this excessive le- le- uh, legislation. I would hate to be a child today and have to wear all the encumbrances that the insurance... How did the rest of us ever survive to adulthood? You know, I, I, I remember uh, for years I worked at a Christian camp down in Central Texas, and for several summers I was a wrangler there. And I always enjoyed going back there. And for years I went back there, I would teach at summer camps, and I would teach at... Uh, all kinds of different functions there. The last time I was there, I walked into the barn, and there were uh, a stack of what looked like motorcycle helmets. I said, what, what's that for? Well, when we take the, the kids out on trail rides now, they, they can't, you know, they've got to wear a uh, helmet. They get on a horse. I mean, they can't wear, you know, just like a cowboy hat like people have done for centuries. No, no. I thought, oh, that's it. I just can't handle modern reality anymore. That's the last time I've been back. I just can't stand the new, the new approach to everything. But see, we're, we're obsessed with safety and living long in a nation that no longer has a, a, a concept of eternal life through salvation. We're afraid of death. 
as a culture. So what, what we do is we have more and more legislation directed towards trying to keep everybody healthy and alive for as long as possible because we've lost any concept of an afterlife. And that's one way in which it affects our culture. And that's the, that, that's the aspect underlying all of this legislation that nobody ever talks about. It reflect, always, legislation ultimately and always will reflect some view of spiritual reality. So anyway, what we have here is a cry to Deborah to come forward, step into the gap of leadership, and to Barak. And the cry for him is, Arise, Barak, and take away your captives. This is viewed proleptically, going back, uh, reviewing the call initially to Barak, that Deborah had promised him victory and said that God would give him victory. That's back in chapter 4, verse 6. Now she, that is Deborah, sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor. Take with you ten thousand men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun, and I will draw out to you. Notice God doesn't say, and we will see what will happen, or perhaps. He says, I will draw out to you, Sisera, the commander of Yabin's army, with his chariots and many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. That's not what Barak hears. He hears a maybe, and he says, well, Deborah, I'll do it if you go with me. And he demonstrates that he doesn't really have the courage, the battle courage necessary to to take on the task because what has happened in paganism is that it has eroded the confidence of the people in God and it has eroded the leadership in the nation. That was the whole point in the Shamgar reference in verse 31 of chapter 3. And at that time, I, I spent some time talking about what happens in paganism and as we, paganism is a term I use that's roughly synonymous to human viewpoint, cosmic thinking, um, worldly thinking, all of that is basically the same thing. And what happens when a nation succumbs to human viewpoint or cosmic thinking is that they start redefining sexual roles. You see it in the pagan uh, gods and goddesses of the ancient world, and you see it working its way out in our own culture. As a result of that, we live in a society where men aren't sure what it means to be a man. Uh, women aren't sure what it means to be women. And some women think that it should mean that they are men. And so we have role reversals and we have problems with authority. And we have breakdowns in, in marriage as a result of that in family. And at the time when we went through that, I made a point that um, to re- remind everybody and to point out to the men that the men are placed by God as the spiritual head of the home. That means that men are ultimately going to be held responsible for the spiritual welfare of the home, for the training in the home, and to see that uh, the kids and everybody in the family gets to a Bible class and makes doctrine a number one priority. Now, when I said that, and when I taught this in the past, and I had not, uh, I had failed to remind people of this when I taught that, there are always males in the congregation who have not been living up to that responsibility. And sooner or later, there's always one, either on the tape or sitting here, who decides, gets gung-ho and says, well, I'm going to go do it. And they run home, and all of a sudden, after 5, 10, 15 years of failing to be a leader in the home, they decide to 
grab the bull by the horns and they're going to start running everything. Well, that's a guaranteed recipe for failure. Because what you've done is you've created a culture of non-leadership and passivity for however long you've been married, and you can't reverse that overnight. The path to recovery is slow. As long as it's taken you to uh, sow the seeds of spiritual failure in leadership, that's how long you need to take to, to reverse the, the damage. Uh, three principles you need to remember. First of all, men, we lead by example. We lead by example. That means we start making doctrine a priority in our lives, not just, as James says, hearing the Word, but being appliers of the Word as well. That means we're going to make doctrine the number one priority. And before we start trying to ram doctrine down the throats of our wives or our children, because we're gung-ho about being the spiritual leader again, uh, we need to make sure that we are seeing the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine in our own lives. So you start off just by making sure you can get things squared away and demonstrating that by example. Secondly, if this has not been the way you have done things, and uh, you're, you're going to have a lot of problems. You have to remember that on the other side, not only have men in our culture been culturally programmed and prepared to be passive and effeminate and not function as spiritual leaders in the home, you have to realize that your wife has the opposite problem. She has been programmed and prepared by her culture to be the spiritual leader in the home, for the most part. I'm talking in generalities. Um, she has been, uh, and you've probably aided and abetted the cosmic system in that by your passivity over the years. So... Um, one of the things that often happens, and I see it, is a guy gets a little gung-ho about his role as the leader in the home, and, and he runs home, and he starts trying to put things into practice. And even if he does it in a somewhat gentle, sensitive manner, he runs into resistance. He can't understand why. Well, the reason why is because often wives are skeptical. Wait a minute. What are you trying to do here? What are you trying to pull off? I, I, I don't trust you. Second, they've been culturally prepared that that's their role, not your role. And, um, and third, we have a little problem called the curse from Genesis chapter 3, which says that, uh, that the natural tendency of women is to try to usurp the leadership of the male, where it says that the woman is to, will, will have a desire for the man. That word there in the Hebrew is teshuka, which is not a sexual desire. It is a desire to control. So... Guys, you're going to run into a little bit of resistance because of the spiritual conflict. So you go softly and you walk gently and you look first and foremost to your own spiritual life and your own spiritual growth. Third point is that this does not mean, men, that you now become the pastor teacher for your uh, little fledgling congregation at home. That means it's not your job to start teaching doctrine to everybody. You don't come in and get out the Bible and sit down at the breakfast table and say, okay, I'm going to sermonize for about 15 minutes every morning and start teaching doctrine to everybody. That's not what the passage says. The passage says that men are to train up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if you want to understand what that's about, you have to go back to Deuteronomy 4, 5, 6, and where it talks about the responsibility of the parents in teaching and training 
their children in doctrine in the, under the Mosaic Law, that they were to talk about the Word in their rising up and their lying down, that wherever they went in their goings and their comings in the morning and at night, they were to talk about the Word. It's a, it's a lifestyle pattern of, of uh, talking about when you have decisions to make, you, you exemplify the application of doctrine in the decision-making process, and that becomes evident to both your children and your spouse in the process. It's an example. It's showing that, that doctrine makes a difference in how you make decisions, and you're going to demonstrate that by example. And then when your kids come along and they say, well, Dad, I've got a problem. I need to make a decision. Then you say, okay, what do you think the Bible says about this? You don't necessarily preach them and say, well, the Bible says... And you sit down and you say, okay, now what have we learned that the Scripture teaches? And encourage them to start learning how to think biblically and apply doctrine to the decision that they have to make. You know, one of the ways you can guarantee that, that when your kid becomes a, an adolescent that they rebel, go through a period of rebellion against your spiritual leadership is to try to ram it down their throats, especially when they're younger. You know, try to encourage them. You teach them... Uh, uh, you know, I think it's a great thing for fathers to be able to go in at night, and uh, especially when the kids are younger, and to uh, read Bible stories to them, and just make you know make points here and there, uh, application. Don't try to become the pastor of your own little congregation. So those are just a few little words of advice in terms of application as we seek to deal with the fact that men are the responsible leader in the home. They are the, and I always emphasize leadership aspect as opposed to the authority aspect. You see, so often when we come to passages in, in the New Testament which talks about the fact that wives are to be submissive to the husbands, husbands are to love their wives, uh, this, this, it, it's like the Bible is brought out as some kind of club on the women that they need to be submissive. And I try to reverse the fact, and it's that, that the men need to start exercising spiritual leadership. And exercising leadership has a different nuance and dynamic than exercising authority. Uh, a husband is not the newly appointed drill sergeant to make sure that the wife now understands all of the basics and gets her life in line. That's, that application has been tried a few times, unfortunately, and it's a misapplication and misrepresentation of the Scriptures. And uh, a marriage is a loving relationship. It is not... Um, a military barracks situation. So, the man must exercise a little bit of wisdom and uh, intelligence in the application of doctrine. And this is clearly a slap in the face on Barak because Barak is mentioned second in the passage, whereas Deborah is still given priority. And that was the divine, the announcement of divine judgment for his uh, <coughs> effeminate, cowardly response in verse. Uh, 9, Deborah said, I will go with you. This is back in chapter 4. I'll go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey. You're not going to get the honor for the victory because you have failed to seize the initiative and take your responsibility. You're functioning more like the, like the uh, pagan, effeminate man and not like the spiritual hero who has confidence in God. The honor of <coughs> the victory will not go to you it will go to a woman. And at that point, perhaps, he thought that he, she was referring to herself, and we learned that she was referring to someone else. So there is this uh, 
nuance here, this implication in just the order of the names that Barak is playing second fiddle, as it were, and he is in the background. Now, he is told to take away your captive, so this is a reference to the fact that he is to, he will have victory, and he is the one who will lead his captives in a victory parade. Then in verse 13, we read, Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. Now, this again is a, is a sample of synonymous parallelism in Hebrew poetry where the two uh, clauses are roughly parallel. But in the first clause, the survivors came down to the nobles. There's a hint there of the devastation that has occurred in Israel due to the uh, discipline of the fourth cycle of discipline during the previous uh, 20 years. The word translated survivors or in that passage can also mean escapees. And it is the Hebrew word, sarid. Looks like this, S-A-R-I-D. And Sarid is, is a picture of those who, are, who have survived a catastrophe. If you go down and you look at a, at a group of refugees who have fled a country because of some military or national disaster, that's the picture of this word. These are not people who, have, who are militarily trained, who have nice, shining... Uh, well-pressed, well-turned-out uniforms. This is a picture of a motley crew of survivors and refugees who have managed to pull themselves together to make a sort of ragtag army. And yet, in the eyes of the world, uh, uh, people would say, and the world system would say, well, that can't, can't solve problems. That's just this ragtag bunch of people. They have no military training. They have no weaponry. They do have, we know from the passage back in verse um, verse uh, 11, that they had, um, uh, it's translated New American Standard, the sound of those who divide flocks. And we saw in the Hebrew, it's at the sound of the archers. Uh, that's another one of those problem passages, but it should be translated archers. So they had, they had bow and arrow, but they didn't have chariots. They didn't have the latest weaponry. They didn't have any iron. They didn't have any steel. They didn't have, all they had was uh, uh, wood, spears, and bows and arrows to attack the army. So they are pitiful in comparison to the well-trained, well-turned-out Canaanite army. And so human viewpoint says, well, if you're really going to solve problems in life and you're going to handle the adversities of life, then you have to have all the latest, greatest weaponry and all the latest, greatest tools and techniques for handling problems. So we have to march ourselves down to whoever just graduated from the uh, uh, counseling school and psychotherapy, and we have to go down to the self-help section of Barnes & Noble or whatever the local bookstore is, get on Amazon.com and page through and find out what the latest, greatest psychobabble technique is for solving the problems in our lives. And uh, what this passage is pointing out is that that... God is the one who gives the victory, and it's not up to human resources to solve the problem because human resources are inadequate. It is God's grace alone that is sufficient. Second principle we learn here is that it is always God who gives the victory despite our inabilities, our failures, and our flaws. And that tells us that if we're still alive, no matter how badly we fail, no matter how much we screwed up in life, no matter what the disaster is, if, um, 
If we're still alive, God still has a plan for our lives, and there is recovery. That's what has happened in Israel. And so this ragtag bunch of Sarid survivors, these refugees who uh, uh, don't have any weaponry and they just have makeshift weapons that they've pulled out of their home, God is going to still use them to provide a tremendous victory. And that's a picture of the believer who's gone through a period of reversionism and backslidden and carnality and has really messed his life up to the maximum by piling one bad decision upon another. Yet God still in His grace provides victory and recovery. So this is a tremendous sign of God's grace and encouragement. In verse 14, we read about those who the praise for those who came, uh, came to the aid and responded to the call. From Ephraim, that's the tribe of Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek, came down. Following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Machir, commanders came down. And from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. So these are four different groups that are singled out here for praise. Ephraim operated in the hill country, somewhat north of of, uh, Jerusalem, but still in the central highlands. And um, they had been plagued by Amalek. That's that... Awkward phrase, those whose root is in Amalek. This refers to the Amalekites, another group of Canaanites who were continuously oppressing Israel and would until Saul finally wiped them out in a major battle that's covered in about Saul, uh, 1 Samuel 15 or 16. Amalek was a large group of uh, Bedouin Arabs that were like desert pirates who marauded through the ancient world. And when I mean a large group, I think that their armies numbered in excess of 100,000 perhaps. Uh, we know from when, when the Jews were coming out of Egypt and on their way to Sinai that they met a, a, an Amalekite army that was headed east. And it scared them to death because of their military prowess and because of their cruelty. And it was a major pitched battle. And we know from the census that Moses took not long after that, that Israel probably had an army of three or 400,000 men that they were fielding against the Amalekites. And yet they were afraid of being overpowered and losing the battle. So Amalek is not just some minor little group of... Uh, of uh, Palestinian herdsmen living up in uh, the hill country in the central highlands. This is a major military force, and this was just another one of the ethnic groups that was continuously aligning themselves against Israel. So Ephraim had had problems with Amalek, and yet they uh, disengaged and came to this battle. And then the tribe of Benjamin also in the south, they came with their people. Makir is a reference to part of the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh was one of Joseph's uh, sons. And if you remember Joseph, there is no tribe of Joseph. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And this references the tribe of Manasseh. His, Manasseh's oldest son was Machir in Genesis 50, verse 23, who was also in turn the father of Gilead. Uh, Numbers 32, 39, and 40 tells us that Machir captured the land of Gilead, which is on the Transjordan, that's east of the Jordan, and Moses assigned that land to him. So this name, Machir then, becomes a name for the half of the tribe of Manasseh that had their territory across the Jordan on the east side of the Jordan. This Remember that because the Gileadites, which is the other half 
of Manasseh, the Manasseh tribe does not come to the forefront in this battle. So half of Manasseh uh, uh, comes out and responds to the call and musters their forces, and the other half does not. The praise goes on from Makir. Commanders came down. So this is talking about the upper echelon. The officer corps was provided by Makir and by Zebulun. The, the uh, name the, or the phrase here that is translated um, from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office should probably best be translated those who mustered with the staff of the commander. So the field officers were provided by uh, Zet, the tribe of Zebulun. Verse 15, And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, and as was Issachar, so was Barak. And what that means is that that just as Barak was at the forefront of the battle, so was Issachar. Where Barak went, Issachar went. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. As he led the charge, they were right with him. This is a picture of their faithfulness. More is said, and four lines are devoted here to Issachar more than any other tribe. So it indicates their faithfulness, their loyalty, their courage, and their willingness to stand in the gap and come to the battle. They, all of these tribes understood the priority. The, the nation was their priority. There's the establishment application here that freedom comes through military victory and they were willing to give their lives for the freedom of the nation. But the spiritual principle is that these tribes understood the spiritual reality and they were willing to trust God and they, they were willing to put doctrine first and put their own personal pleasure and their own personal lives second. They had their priorities straight. And opposition to that, you come to the last half of verse 15, and we see the criticism of the tribes who were just too preoccupied. They were too busy. Their jobs took precedence. Their education took precedence. Their, their families, their, their, their sports activity, their personal pleasure, whatever it was, it was more important to them than the application of doctrine. And this is the negative side. And this reveals to us the fragmentation in the nation as a result of the way that they had failed to handle life. They had failed to apply doctrine. And as they succumbed to more and more human viewpoint and pagan thought, it fragmented the nation. And this is exactly what happens in our lives. When we succumb to, to uh, human viewpoint thinking, we are under, that's tantamount to sin nature control of the soul. We're out of fellowship. And as we encounter more and more adversity, the result is that it is transferred into stress in the soul and starts producing fissures and cracks and fragmentation in our soul so that we become ineffective. And when it comes time to step to the plate, we have created a habit pattern of compromise. And so when the real battle is joined, we would rather stay home with the flocks. And that's the picture of verse 16. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds? This is the um, indictment of the tribe of Reuben. Why did you stay home with the sheep? Literally, to hear the piping for the flocks. And the Hebrew here is a word sharika, which looks like, like this, sharika. This word is only used one time, in, one other time in the Old Testament, and that is in Jeremiah 18.6. 
Jeremiah 18.6, and there it has a negative nuance. This is a, a, a pejorative term. It's a, it, it indicates derisive hissing in Jeremiah 18.6, and it indicates the idea that, that and, and what d- the author is communicating here is, is derision and disrespect for what the Reubenites have done. They just sat at home with their sheep, uh, listening to the piping of the flocks. Everything was calm. Everything was peaceful. Let's stay at home and watch TV tonight. It's a good show on. We can just relax. Let's not go to like snow, whatever the reason. Uh, we're just uh, going to stay home. And we're going to put a show of positive volition that we were concerned. That's the indication in the last part. There were great searchings of heart. Read this with sarcasm. Uh, if Deborah wrote this, she's being very sarcastic. You sat at home with the sheeples and, oh, you just, you tossed and turned at night. You put on this great show of uh, how concerned you were with the rest of the nation and how uh, important the spiritual realities were. But when it came right down to it, you stayed at home. It was just, um, you put on a great show, but it was, it was just a fraud. And that's what happens with so many Christians. They talk a lot about Christianity. They talk a lot about going to church. They talk a lot about how important the Word is in their life. But that's all it is, is talk. The indictment of the uh, tribes that failed to come out continues in verse 17. Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in ships? See, Gilead's the other half of the Manasseh tribe, and, and they didn't come forward. And why did Dan stay in ships? Dan's located in the northwest along the uh, seacoast of the Mediterranean, and their fishing was just too good. We'll lose too much money. Uh, I can't take off from work to come help everybody else. Doctrine's just not a priority. Income is. Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. Uh, Dan's out fishing. Asher's running the home base uh, seafood processing plants, and and both tribes are pictured as being more concerned with uh, material gain in their careers and uh, what's going on in their commercial endeavors than the overall health of the nation. So that gives us the the um, the condemnation of those tribes. And starting in verse 18, starting in verse 18, we see the statement of praise for the two key tribes that provided the greatest number of soldiers for the fight, Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun is a people who despised their lives even to death. They had their priorities right. Doctrine was right. They were going to apply the word, their relationship with the Lord. The nation Israel was first and foremost, even if it cost them their life. They disdained their life. The Hebrew is cheref, which means to disdain, to despise, to count as nothing. They recognized that, that the plan of God was everything. Their personal agenda and their personal plan was nothing. And so they were willing to put their lives in jeopardy for the plan of God. Verse 19. Here we see the description of the battle itself. The kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder in silver. So they're not plundering the enemy, but they are killing him. And they are going to destroy the 900 iron chariots that are brought against them and wipe out uh, the nation, but I mean the, the Canaanites, but they're not in it for personal plunder. They didn't get anything out of it. Then in verse 
20, we have an interesting description here. This shows us that the battle is not merely a physical military battle. This is a function of the angelic conflict and that there are indeed forces behind the scenes involved in the battle. The stars fought from heaven. The stars here is a reference to the angelic forces. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. So this opens up, as it were, the, uh, the curtain a little bit to show us that what's going on in the physical dimension is also being mirrored in a spiritual dimension. Now, the problem with this today is that that is part of the mysticism and all of the uh, religious babble that goes on today, especially from the um, uh, charismatic crowd, is to put such an emphasis on this that somehow, and there was a guy who wrote a book, a novel on spiritual warfare about 10 or 12 years ago that sold an inordinate number of copies for the garbage theology it was, but just shows that people will read and buy anything. And uh, in that, he was trying to show that uh, we're involved in spiritual warfare and that there are things that go on behind the scenes in the angelic dimension. But his theology was, well, I'll be nice and just say it was pathetic. And I was amazed at how many people I knew who were trained biblicists, trained theologians at places like Dallas Seminary, professors, who read this and went, oh, it's great, it's a great encouragement to get out in spiritual warfare. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So when the guy says that the that, that angelic forces are strengthened by, by the prayers of the believer, and if the believer doesn't pray, then their force is weakened. You, you agree with that? No, that's not biblical. So why are you saying it's a good book? I mean, it just had, was loaded with error after error after error, but, oh, it's, it's just fiction. Well, the parables are fiction. Just because it's fiction doesn't mean it, that absolves it from teaching spiritual reality and spiritual truth. What we see here is there, there is a spiritual dimension, and that is that when the believer, i.e. here Israel, is engaged in proper obedience to God, they're, they're back in fellowship, they have confessed their sin when they cried out to the Lord, they are back in fellowship, they are obedient to the Lord, then God is the one who gives us the victory. We don't know what goes on in the spiritual dimension. We can't second-guess it. That's why we have to do exactly what God says to do. God tells us to stand firm, and in the process of standing firm, what He means is do what I tell you to do, and don't go beyond that. It's not your job to go out and try to engage in some sort of one-on-one spiritual battle with the angels. It's not up to us to rebuke Satan. That's not ever mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Jesus is the only one who can do that. But we get involved in the battle to the degree that we know what the priorities are. We learn doctrine. We apply doctrine in the filling of the Holy Spirit. We advance to spiritual maturity. And then God in the spiritual realm, unseen and unknown, unbeknownst to us, deals with whatever else is going on in the spiritual dimension. It's not for us to know, speculate about, or be concerned about. God deals with it. Now, here we see a picture that Israel is not at all concerned. They're not out there uh, trying to... Uh, bind Satan or rebuke Satan or tie up the demons. They're not engaged in any of this uh, uh, mumbo-jumbo pseudo-witchcraft that the charismatic crowd, and that's what it is. When you start getting involved in that kind of attitude towards angels and demons, that has to do with magic and witchcraft, which is where it comes from, and it doesn't have to do with biblical Christianity. You don't see the Jews doing that. They do what God says to do, get together, go into battle, and attack the enemy. 
but don't worry about what's going on. I'm going to tell you what's going on, and that is that the reason you won is because the angelic forces came to your aid, and through deception, bringing deception upon Sisera, he took his troops into a wadi, the Kishon, and then the uh, angels who controlled the weather brought out a major uh, rainstorm uh, up in the highlands that brought a flash flood and wiped out his army. Now, that wasn't something they prayed for. They were praying for victory, but they didn't get involved. They did not understand the spiritual, what was going on in the invisible realm, let's say. And we're not supposed to be concerned about that. Our focus is what is on the what is material and physical, and we are to apply doctrine and not go beyond that in illegitimate and inordinate speculation. But that is just one example of how mysticism has invaded and is destroying contemporary Christianity. Okay, let's move on. Verse 22, we see a further image here. The horse's hooves beat. Now, the word here in the Hebrew indicates a, a, a panic. This is the, not the horses running away from the flood. This is the absolute uh, calamity and panic that ensues as the flash flood comes down and the horses could smell the water coming and all of a sudden they panic and they're running into each other and the chariots are turning over and the... Uh, Soldiers are being cast aside and, and run over by the panicky horses, uh, pulling the chariots behind them. And the whole scene is one of absolute catastrophe. And then all of a sudden they're overwhelmed by the flood. The same kind of picture that you get from uh, the, the Exodus with the destruction of Pharaoh's army after Israel crossed the Red Sea. Verse 23, there is a curse on Miraz, which is a town located near there because of their failure to come into the battle. Verse 23, Curse Merod, said the angel of the Lord. Remember, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. The angel of the Lord is not just any angel, but is the messenger of Yahweh. And it's clear from a number of passages that this is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the Israeli Israelite armies. It is the angel of the Lord who is the commander. And so the angel of the Lord commands not only the physical troops of Israel, but also the holy angels who are involved in the elect angels who are involved in the um, spiritual dimension. And so we see that, that the picture here is of the battlefield on the earth. We've seen a glimpse into what's happening in the heavenlies. And over all the battlefield, everything is being directed by the commander-in-chief who is the angel of the Lord. And there is one town located here, Miraz, and as the army of Sisera is wiped out and he escapes, he goes through Miraz and they lose and they do not take advantage of this fantastic opportunity to, to kill Sisera and to finalize the victory. So there is a cur curse pronounced upon them because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. But in contrast to their failure now, we come to the great praise section of this psalm, beginning in verse 24, and this is a praise of Jael. Now, one of the things that, that just seems to amaze me sometimes when I get involved with reading certain things by, by uh, certain Christian writers and ethicists is they just get into such uh, uh, emotional and intellectual gymnastics when they come to a passage like this. She's deceptive. 
she suckered this guy in and got him in the house and fed him and acted like everything was good. And then she drove a tent peg through his head. Oh, how can God praise her? How can this be right to use deception like this? They don't understand it's war. And just as with Rahab, under war conditions, those kinds of peacetime ethics issues are irrelevant. They, they always come out, well, well, and they, they just wring their hands over a passage like this. And it just, it, it's just, it's like, you guys would never make it in the military. You need to get a taste of reality somewhere. But um, Jael is pictured as a woman who is loyal to God and loyal to the covenant with God, understands the divine issues and that this is the enemy of God and her job is to take him out. Now, as a woman, she is not a match for him, strength for strength, so she has to devise a strategy in order to take him out. And she does. And she is never condemned for the strategy. In fact, she is called most blessed of women, a title that is given to only one other woman in the Scripture, and that's the mother of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mary is called most blessed among women. So if you're going to wring your hands over the fact that she, uh, she was a little deceptive here, a question occurred to me. What in the world do these guys do when some guy is going to do a fake pass? You get out there in a football game and you're going to, oh, yeah, I'm going to throw a fake. Oh, I deceptive. I've got to confess that. That's a sin. My goodness. Oh, I'm just going to get all caught up in, in all kinds of introspection here and overwhelm and forget reality. What, do these guys never play chess? Try to fake somebody out? To think that I'm going to go this way and now my moves are going to go that way? Well, oh, that's deceptive. Oh, can't do that. These guys must be absolute failures in life if you apply consistently their concept of ethics. They just can't... Uh, it, it, it's just absolutely pathetic. No wonder the Christian church is in the mess it's in. Uh, most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water, she gave him milk. I'm not going to just give you water, I'm going to give you I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to I'm going to give you milk. And then you have an expanded uh, parallelism here, uh, emblematic parallelism where the second line expands on the first in a magnificent bowl. She brought him courage so she honors him. She brings out the best uh um crystal that she has, the best china, and she pours the, uh, puts the yogurt in that. That's really what it is for, in our culture. Um, she puts the yogurt in there, and then uh, after he eats, he's sleepy. Calcium had its effect on his brain, and he's tired from his journey in the battle, and he lies down thinking he's in a place of security. And then we get such, it slows down here. The pace has been fast. Awake, awake, awake. You can almost hear the horse beats, the beat of the horse hooves all the way through up to this point, and then you get to about verse 25, and whoa, we slow down, and we're going to put all of our attention on what this fantastic woman did because she understood the spiritual priorities. She's got divine viewpoint in the soul, and she understands what the issues are, and that gives her courage. That gives her uh, courage. You know, there's three different kinds of courage. There's there's uh, battle courage, battlefield courage, and almost anybody can have battlefield courage. Then there's moral courage, and a lot of unbelievers, in fact, can have moral courage. But the courage that overrides everything and undergirds the other two and makes us strong is spiritual courage. And that only comes from right orientation to Bible doctrine in the soul and orientation to the plan of God. And she is oriented to doctrine and to the plan of God. So as soon as Sisera starts snoring, she reaches over and grabs a tent peg. Now the tent peg then, I don't know if you've been camping lately, we have the you know, little 
aluminum tent pegs about like this. Well, these were large tents. This is about a uh, three or four foot long wooden tent peg. And she grabs the workman's hammer. That's his big mallet. And she just stands over him and just positions this tent peg right over his, uh, his temple. And then she just drives it right through his head and into the ground. Just skewers him, nails him to the ground. Then she struck Sisera. She smashed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. This is tremendous graphics here. And this is, remember, this is scripture. Now, this is probably going to make some people squeamish and, and the liberals would probably, this is one of the passages the liberals think that, oh, the Bible's so horrible, we shouldn't have children read it because it has passages like this. But remember, this is inspired by God the Holy Spirit for our benefit. Teach us a little bit about how to behave in combat. Okay, she reached her hand for the tent peg and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he bowed, he fell, he lay. Such, such a tremendous image here that he, it's not that he fell down, it's that, that this is where he died. That's the, the uh, uh, idiom there. He lay between her feet, he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead, which is interesting. This, this is a stair-step parallelism where, where it builds to a crescendo to his death. And then there is this remarkable shift of scene as we move from his, his death, his, his destruction in the tent of Faber the Kenite to, to looking at the grief of his mother. Out of the window she looked and lamented the mother of Sisera. And there's a contrast here because earlier in the psalm, Deborah is referred to as the mother in Israel. So it's looking on how, how the godly mother leads the nation and influences them to apply doctrine and to move to victory in contrast to the values of the pagan mother. She's looking for Sisera out through the window and she's waiting for him to come home and, and she's saying, why didn't he come home? Where's his chariot? Why is there a delay? Why don't I hear the hoofbeat? She's waiting and waiting. And listen to what she says. Oh, her wise princesses would answer and say, indeed, she repeats her words to herself. She says, oh, I know what the problem is. Are they not finding? Are they not dividing the spoil? I know what's happened. They've just got so much booty from, the, from these Israelites that they're dividing the spoil. So much so they're taking all the women. A maiden, even two maidens for every warrior. That's right, my husband's, my uh, son is out there uh, raping as many women as he can. This is her value. That's why he's late. He's out there engaged in taking all of these Jewish women for himself. So we see how decadent her values are, how, how, uh, uh, what paganism does in, to destroy the value system of a culture. She says, To Sisera, a spoil of dyed work, a spoil of dyed work embroidered. So she's thinking about all the spoils and plunder that's going to come to him as he rapes and pillages the, uh, the Israelites. And then the conclusion of the writer is, verse 31, Thus let all thine enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And then we have the conclusion. Those who trust the Lord have rest. There is peace and stability in the land. It is undisturbed for 40 years. Not because of Israel's greatness, not because of their military prowess, not because they had a great political leader, not because they had a great military leader, but because the, the solution was the opposite of what caused the caused the problem. The problem was caused by spiritual apostasy and the victory comes because they trust God, not because of their own innate systems or talent. 
It is always God who gives us the victory. As Paul learned in first, uh, in Second Corinthians uh, 11, God's grace is sufficient for us that His strength is made evident in our weakness. The divine solution is the only solution, and the human solution always leads to self-destruction and failure. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for the time to look at Your Word today, to be encouraged by the fact that You are the God who gives us victory. We are reminded of 1 Corinthians 14. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 15. Father, we thank You for the fact that You have given us an ultimate victory over all of our problems through our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, that He solved there the greatest problem we will ever face. And so, because of that, we know that You can solve any and every other problem that we face in life. Father, we pray that as we... we uh, Go from here that the Holy Spirit would help us to remember and recall the things that we have learned and be able to put them into practice. Father, we pray too that if there's anyone here who is uncertain of their salvation, that they would know that salvation comes by Jesus Christ, faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus Christ went to the cross. There he paid the penalty for every sin we will ever commit in life. Because Christ paid the penalty, sin is no longer the issue The issue is your response to Jesus Christ. So right now, right where you sit, you can solve the, you can provide the solution for your eternal destiny by simply accepting the free gift of salvation by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we commit these things to your hands. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.